With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On April 19, 1986, a man was walking his dog when he saw a piece of clothing floating in the River Trent in Nottingham, England. When he took a closer look, he discovered that it was actually a child's body. He used a stick to guide it to the bank of the river and pulled it to shore. Then he notified the police. The body was identified as a 10-year-old girl who had gone missing 24 days earlier from Morley, 70 miles or 112 kilometers north of Nottingham. She disappeared when she walked a short distance to the corner store to buy a loaf of bread. The search had been exhaustive, but no leads were turned up as to who had taken her in the three and a half weeks since she had vanished. Once the body was recovered, authorities did find similarities to two other cases of kidnapped and murdered young girls who had been taken from other areas and had their bodies dumped in the Midlands. Having to solve the murder of one child was grueling enough, but police in the UK learned that they were hunting a serial child killer. This is Monsters. Robert Black was born on April 21, 1947, in Falkirk, Scotland. His mother, Jessie Hunter Black, was an unmarried factory worker and nobody but Jessie knew who the biological father was. She contemplated putting Robert up for adoption, but instead found a foster family to raise him. She went on to move to Australia, get married, and have four more children, none of whom were told about their half-brother back in the United Kingdom. Robert was fostered by Jack and Margaret Tulip, who had already fostered a number of children previously. Robert grew up in the small village of Kinlochleven in the Scottish Highlands. Jack Tulip died when Robert was only five years old, leaving Margaret to try to raise the already troubled young boy on her own. When Robert entered primary school, he quickly turned to bullying as a way to cope with his situation. He had developed severe anger issues at a young age and would bully any other student who was smaller or weaker than him. He once beat up a disabled student who had an artificial leg. Margaret would try to keep him in line by spanking him or locking him in his room, but it never seemed to help. He often wet the bed, which would get him another spanking from his foster mother. It's not known if there was any sexual abuse of Robert early on, but he began developing distorted views of sex from an early age. He became fascinated with female genitalia and said in a later interview that he took an infant he was watching when he was eight into his house and looked at her privates. He was also overly interested in what could fit inside the orifices of the human body. He began experimenting by inserting objects into his own anus. 
After his arrest years later, police would find pictures of Robert with various objects inserted into his anus. When Robert was 11 years old, Margaret died and he was sent to Reading House, a children's home in Stirlingshire. Other children at the home remember Robert making sexual remarks to the female staff and said he actively pursued the young girls that were staying there. A former resident said he woke up one night and saw a nurse pulling a girl about six years old away from Robert's bed. The next day, Robert was sent to a different children's home. This one was an all-boys school called Red House, about six miles or ten kilometers east of Edinburgh. Unlike Reading House, where a former resident said the children were well cared for, Red House assigned the boys numbers and Robert suffered sexual abuse by one of the male staff. For a young boy who already had a distorted view of sex, this only reinforced his idea that if he wanted something sexually, he should just take it. When Robert was only 12 years old, he and two other boys attacked a young girl in a field. They attempted to rape her, but none of them were able to perform. When he was punished, he showed no remorse for his actions. Though Robert was good at many sports, he enjoyed swimming the most. That's because he liked to go to the swimming pools and leer at the girls in their bathing suits. In 1962, when Robert was 15 years old, he left school and the Red House. Child welfare services provided him with lodging and a job. He became an apprentice butcher and lived in a boys' hostel in Greenock on the west side of Scotland. His job required him to make deliveries, and he began using those times out of the butcher shop to find and molest little girls. He would later tell criminologist Ray Wire that any time he was out on a delivery, if he saw a little girl, he would sit down next to her and start talking to her. He would attempt to touch the girl, and sometimes he would succeed, sometimes he didn't. The number of girls that were molested by Robert during that time is unknown. When Robert was 16, he went to a playground where a group of children were playing and waited for the other kids to leave until a seven-year-old girl was alone. At first, he talked to her and offered to push her on the swing. Then he told her that he knew where there were some kittens and asked if she wanted to see them. She was seven, so of course she wanted to see them. He took the girl to an abandoned air raid shelter, and when they got inside, she got scared and tried to leave, but Robert put one hand over her mouth and began choking her with the other hand. When the girl lost consciousness, Robert lifted her skirt and removed her underwear. Then he molested her and masturbated. When he was finished, he put her underwear back on and left the shelter. He didn't know if she was unconscious or if he had killed her, but he didn't care. The girl was later found wandering the street, crying and bleeding. She identified Robert, and he was charged with lewd and libidinous behavior with a young girl. On June 25, 1963, he was found guilty and sentenced to a one-year suspended sentence. A psychiatrist at the time reported that it was an isolated incident and that it was unlikely to happen again. Wow, that person was terrible at their job. I mean, he had been in trouble twice when in children's homes for incidents involving young girls. Seems like a no-brainer that Robert had an issue. Due to the psychiatrist's report, Robert was not recommended for any treatment. The worst punishment that Robert suffered was losing his job. Child Services decided that it would probably be best if he left Greenock, and they moved him to a town near Falkirk. 
removing Robert from Greenock just gave him a fresh start in a new town where nobody knew his background. So he quickly found a job as a delivery driver for a magazine and newspaper distributor. This company didn't even check if he had a driver's license, which he didn't, so they surely didn't know about his history of child molestation. It seemed as though Robert met a woman his age and they began dating when he was 17 or 18. It was the only consensual relationship he would ever have and for a while things were going alright. Then the woman, named Pamela, broke up with him and Robert spiraled into a depression. He was completely devastated and began giving in to his pedophiliac urges. Robert lived at the home of an elderly couple and he was caught violating their 10-year-old granddaughter and told to leave. It's not known exactly what they saw as they never reported the incident, but the granddaughter was interviewed years later and confirmed that he had inserted his fingers into her vagina. Soon after, he was fired from his job, which seemed to have nothing to do with the molestation. Robert would say in a later interview that he had a problem showing up for work on time almost everywhere he worked. He moved back to Kinlochleven, where he had lived with the Tulips, and found a place to stay with a couple who had been friends with his former foster parents. They had a six-year-old daughter, but his previous record of child molestation wasn't known, and his last assault was not reported, so this family had no idea the danger they were putting their daughter in. They frequently had him babysit, which he used as an opportunity to molest the little girl. This time, though, when the girl told her parents, they called the police. While Robert was drinking at a local pub, police arrested him and charged him with three counts of indecent assault. What kind of assault is decent? In March of 1967, Robert was sentenced to one year in prison. When he was released in 1968, he lived in a probation hostel for a short time before moving again. He seemed to have a pattern of leaving any place where he might be known as a child molester. He finally moved to London, a bigger city where he could get lost in the crowds and there were more job opportunities. At 21, Robert was in a new city and it wasn't long before he was hunting for young girls. He began a steady stream of jobs working as pool attendants where he had direct access to unlimited minors. In 1971, after living in two other places in London, Robert met Eddie and Kathy Rayson at a pub. They began playing darts and chatting, where they discovered that they were all from the same area in Scotland. Robert told the Raysons that he wasn't happy where he was living, and he ended up renting an attic bedroom in their four-story house where they lived with seven children. Eddie would say in a later interview that they had no idea that their tenant was a child predator. Well, I would hope not if you let him live with you. He said that he always paid his rent on time and they would regularly play cards or hang out at the pub. All of the race and children said that they were never assaulted by Robert in any way. It's possible that Robert knew that he could easily be caught if he did and restrained himself while at home. He was arrested after a 10-year-old girl complained that Robert had touched her while she was at the pool, but he claimed that it was an accident. He wasn't charged, but he was forced to resign his position. After that, Robert got a job that he would hold the longest of any. He got a job with a company called Poster, Dispatch, and Storage, or PDS. They delivered the posters that went on billboards all over the UK and a few other countries in Europe. With this job, he would travel constantly making deliveries, occasionally hitting Germany, France, and the Netherlands. 
he would be in a town and then back out of it, making it a perfect job for someone who might want to kidnap children. He still didn't have a valid driver's license, but he had no problem finally getting one. Robert had a severe lack of hygiene. His entire life, he suffered from foul body odor that would make him a less attractive companion. The Raisins said they only saw him with a girl once in the 19 years that he lived in their attic, and only for one night. It was quite possibly a prostitute. Kathy would regularly remind Robert to bathe, and the kids would tease him about his body odor. His poor hygiene made him unpopular amongst his co-workers, but they did say that he was a hard worker that was always willing to help out the other drivers. Nine-year-old Jennifer Cardi lived in Bollandary, Northern Ireland. The four Cardi children were out of school for summer break on August 12, 1981. Jennifer had just gotten a new bicycle for her birthday a few weeks prior and was anxious to use it. So after lunch, she planned to ride down to a friend's house about a mile and a half away. Jennifer left the house at 1.40pm and was planning to return at 4.30 so she could watch her favorite television show. When she didn't arrive home by the start of the show, her mother, Pat, began to worry. When her father, Andy, arrived home from work and heard that Jennifer had never returned, he went out searching for her. When he went to her friend's house, he learned that Jennifer had never even arrived there. After searching a number of places where children were known to hang out, they contacted the Royal Ulster Constabulary at about 9 p.m. The following morning, Jennifer's red bike was found tossed behind some bushes on the side of the road about a mile away from her house. The bicycle had no damage, so authorities ruled out the idea that she may have been the victim of a hit-and-run. One detail that was noticed was that the kickstand on the bike was pushed out, making it seem as though she had stopped and gotten off of her bike. This made authorities believe that Jennifer had likely been abducted. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Robert had gotten the Midlands run on the morning of August 12, 1981. It included deliveries in Birmingham, Coventry, Liverpool, and Manchester. Occasionally, it also included deliveries in Northern Ireland to places around Belfast and Newry. During this run, employees drove a smaller Datsun van because it wasn't big enough to be considered a commercial vehicle, which significantly reduced the cost of the ferry crossing. After departing the ferry in Northern Ireland, Robert made deliveries in Belfast, Dunmurry, and then Newry. By the afternoon, he was finished with his deliveries and had hours to wait before he'd be able to catch the evening ferry back to Liverpool. On his trip north towards Belfast, Robert took detours through smaller towns, which is where he saw Jennifer riding her bicycle. It's possible that he pulled over and said something to get her off her bike. Police would later say that it had started raining after Jennifer left her house and they theorized that she had stopped under the cover of a tree to get her cardigan out of a bag on her bike. It was here that Robert grabbed her, threw her in his van, and then threw the bicycle behind the bushes. 
At some time, between 1.40 and 5.40 p.m., he sexually assaulted Jennifer, strangled her, and threw her body in a pond. It was determined that the water had caused her watch to stop at 5.40 p.m. Robert made his way to the ferry that evening and was out of the area by the time the search for Jennifer was starting. When word got out that there was a missing child, hundreds of locals, including people on both sides of the conflict that's referred to as the Troubles, came together to take part in the search. Soon, a local British Army regiment was sent to assist, but there was no success at finding Jennifer. Police set up roadblocks and questioned people driving in the area, but by the time that happened, Robert was long gone. On August 18th, Two men hunting ducks were at McKee's Dam when they found Jennifer's body on the edge of the pond. When authorities arrived on the scene, they recognized the white cardigan over a white t-shirt with strawberries on it that her mother had described. She was laying face down in about six inches of water. McKee's Dam is a large pond just off the A1 carriageway. Despite it being close to a major road, it still offered some seclusion for a predator to be able to dump a body. An autopsy revealed that Jennifer had drowned, though marks on her neck revealed that she had also been strangled. It was most likely Robert's intention to strangle her to death, but failed. When he put her face down in the water while she was unconscious, it caused her to drown. Investigators initially believed that the man they were hunting was local due to his knowledge of the area. It was his job as a delivery driver that gave him knowledge of areas all over the UK, so he could prowl areas far from where he lived and throw off any investigation. His plan was working. 11-year-old Susan Maxwell lived in a small village called Cornhill-on-Tweed, which was just south of the border to Scotland in England. On July 30th, 1982, Susan was enjoying her summer break from school just like Jennifer had been the previous year. She lived on a farm with her parents and two siblings. That afternoon, Susan had gotten a ride from one of the farm workers over the border to Coldstream, Scotland, to meet a friend where they played tennis. After an hour of tennis, the girls walked home together until they parted ways near the River Tweed, about a mile from Susan's house. Susan's mother, Liz, drove to the tennis club in Coldstream to offer her daughter a ride home but the place was closed by the time she got there. When she got back home, she called Susan's friend who told her that she left her near the river and she was walking towards the bridge. Liz called the police, who immediately started searching for the missing girl. Police canvassed the area and found a number of witnesses who saw Susan walking across the bridge, carrying her tennis racket at about 4.30 p.m. She was wearing a yellow shirt with palm trees on it and yellow shorts. Witnesses also reported seeing a white van parked in the entrance to a field right near the point where Susan was last seen. Without any other identifying marks, there was no way to find one specific white van. The search turned up no leads, and after a couple of weeks, people in the area weren't sure if Susan would ever be found. On July 30th, Robert had the Northern Run, which was one of the longer routes that the company had. It started in London, took him south to Southampton, then north to Coventry, Nottingham, Sheffield, then across the border to Scotland and into Edinburgh, Glasgow, and as far north as Dundee. 
he had a number of deliveries off the main route, and on his way north and back south he would have had many opportunities to travel through Cornhill-on-Tweed and Coldstream. Robert drove past Susan on the bridge and pulled over a little way ahead of her. He backed his van into the entrance to a field. He was hidden well enough that the unsuspecting girl wouldn't see his van until it was too late. As she came upon the van, Robert grabbed her and pulled her inside. It couldn't be confirmed by the coroner, but it's believed that Robert sexually assaulted the young girl before suffocating her. It's also believed that he had her in his van with him for about 24 hours while he continued to make his deliveries. On August 13th, a delivery driver was taking a shortcut to a friend's house in Loxley, about 245 miles or 395 kilometers south of where Susan was last seen, when he thought he saw some feet with socks on sticking up out of a ditch. He told himself that it was likely just a mannequin since the nearby woods had a history of being used as a dump site. After visiting his friend, he went about his deliveries, but when he returned home at the end of the day, he couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong and reported what he saw to the police. When they arrived, they found the body of a young girl wearing a yellow shirt and yellow shorts. Her shoes were sitting next to her and her underwear were folded up and placed under her head. This meant that Robert had removed her shorts and underwear and put her shorts back on without the underwear. I challenge anyone to think of a reason to remove a kidnapped victim's underwear that doesn't include some type of sexual assault. Actually, I take that back. Don't think about that. Despite the clothing matching Susan's, the decomposition was bad enough that they needed to use dental records to confirm her identity. Because there was such a large distance between where Susan was abducted and where her body was found, police suspected that the killer was possibly a delivery driver, but they only focused their investigation on companies that delivered from Staffordshire to Scotland. They also had no reason to connect this case with Jennifer's case the previous year. Like Jennifer's case, this one would also grow cold. On July 8, 1983, Five-year-old Caroline Hogg was playing outside of her home near the beach in the Portobello area of Edinburgh, Scotland. Caroline had spent the day at a friend's birthday party and after returning home, she still wanted to play, so her mother let her go down to a playground just down the street by her elementary school. Being an area right on the coast, Portobello had a boardwalk that ran along the beach which attracted many people, especially on a warm summer day. The promenade featured games and other play areas that were quite attractive to children. Caroline wasn't supposed to go by herself any closer to the beach, but being a little kid, fun superseded the rules and soon she left the playground and was headed toward the beachside walkway. At 7.15pm, Caroline's mother, Annette, went outside and called out to her daughter. Caroline's older brother, Stuart, was out front playing football with some friends and she asked him if he had seen her, but he hadn't. Soon, the whole family was searching the area, starting at the playground and working their way down to the promenade. They went into the arcade, but Caroline wasn't there. Just before 8pm, the police were notified and search parties were immediately dispatched. Hundreds of people searched for the little girl, even having an army regiment come in to assist but she was gone. Robert started the northern run on July 7th, but since it was a big route, it took multiple days, which is why so many of the other drivers didn't like to do it. 
They didn't like to be away from their families, and many times the run was scheduled on a weekend. Robert always seemed to be willing to take the longer runs that other drivers didn't want. Some people chalk that up to him being a hard worker, but it was actually because those longer runs gave him the opportunity to find victims further away from his home area. He made his deliveries up to Newcastle, where he stopped to get some sleep. The next morning, he continued north, and after making a delivery in Portobello, he decided to stop and take a walk down the promenade. This is where he spotted Caroline playing, and when she wandered out of the playground and toward the lights and excitement of the boardwalk, he followed. Caroline was told that she wasn't able to go into the arcade area without an adult, so when a man approached her and offered to play games with her, she was more than happy to go with him. Witnesses would later report that they saw Caroline walking hand-in-hand with a scruffy-looking man. Robert paid for the girl to go on a carousel before leaving through the back exit. When police questioned the arcade attendant, he said that he remembered the girl who was with a scruffy man. They only went on one ride before leaving. Another kid who knew Caroline said he saw her leaving with the man and she didn't look happy. After they left, Robert sexually assaulted and suffocated the five-year-old. She would be his youngest known victim. On July 18th, a man had pulled over in his car to relieve himself on the side of the road. He discovered the body of a young girl in the ditch and called the police. This time, the body was completely nude and she was badly decomposed. She didn't have any dental records, so her parents identified her by a locket she was wearing. The coroner said that there were no marks on her neck, so strangulation was not likely. It's believed that he suffocated her somehow. The location of her body was also 300 miles or 480 kilometers south of where she was taken. This immediately made authorities tie it to the Susan Maxwell case. Caroline's body was found only 24 miles or 38 kilometers from Susan's. Jennifer's murder was still too far away to spark a connection. With the cases combined, Four different police departments mounted one of the largest murder investigations since the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper a few years earlier. They staked out the roads near the ditch where Caroline's body was recovered and noted license plate numbers in case the killer frequented the area, but it didn't lead to any suspects. That was because Robert didn't frequent the area. Though Robert did frequent the same places regularly to make deliveries, he could use his days of solo travel to take a new route, dump a body, and then never use that route again. And authorities still hadn't expanded their investigation to include anything near London. Investigators couldn't find any evidence that would lead them to Susan and Caroline's killer. They feared that they would soon be called to the discovery of another young girl's body in the summer of 1984, but the call never came. For the next couple of years, it seemed that Robert had taken a break from kidnapping and murdering children, at least in the UK. On March 26, 1986, just before 8pm, Jackie Harper asked her 10-year-old daughter, Sarah, if she would run to the corner store and buy a loaf of bread in their small town of Morley just outside of Leeds, England. It was a gloomy rainy day, so Sarah put on her coat and walked the short distance to the store. The owner would later report that Sarah did come into the store and buy a loaf of bread. She also returned two lemonade bottles and bought two bags of crisps. Just after she entered the store, 
a man entered, looking around quickly and then left. Sarah left the store right after he did. As Jackie waited for her daughter to return, she began to grow concerned. At 8.30, Jackie sent her other daughter, Claire, outside to find Sarah, assuming she had run into someone she knew and was chatting. When Claire came back and reported that she couldn't find Sarah, Jackie went out to search for her. She went to the store and the owners told her that Sarah had left shortly after 8 p.m. When Sarah couldn't be found by 9 o'clock, Jackie called the police. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Like the previous disappearances, searches began immediately and over 100 police officers went door to door asking for any information they could get. They found two girls who had seen Sarah leave the store and then enter an alley that was a shortcut back to her home, but they said she was alone. The store owners described the man who had come in while Sarah was there as a scruffy, balding man, and someone else said they saw a similar-looking man loitering around where Sarah would have been walking. They also got reports of a white Ford Transit van in the area. They searched the surrounding properties with the help of 200 volunteers and had divers search a nearby reservoir. On March 26th, Robert was on the North Run again when he dropped off a delivery in Morley. It was after hours, so he signed the delivery logbook and jumped back into his van to get out of the downpour. It was then that little Sarah walked by on her way to the store and Robert got out of his van and followed her. After she left the store and walked into the alley, he must have grabbed her and put her in his van. When Sarah was discovered by a man walking his dog on April 19th, she was missing her jacket, skirt, and shoes. The coroner determined that she had drowned but was likely unconscious when she went in the water. Then he reported that he found severe injuries to her vagina and anus, which was consistent with violent sexual assault. Authorities recognized the similarities between this case and the other two, but they chose to investigate it independently for now. There were a number of differences, such as the fact that Caroline and Susan were kidnapped in the summer and their bodies were located right off the highway. Sarah was taken in the spring and dumped in a river. Authorities did agree to communicate their progress with the agencies who were working the other cases. The police in Morley continued to canvas neighborhoods and stop and question drivers, but no new leads came from the footwork. Eventually, a man called the police and said he saw a stocky, balding man standing by the passenger door of a white Ford Transit, parked very close to the River Soar. That river fed into the River Trent and was likely the place where Robert put Sarah's body in the river. At the end of 1986, authorities weren't any closer to finding Sarah's killer, but they had made the decision to combine her case with Susan and Caroline's. Police departments all over the UK were hunting a serial child killer. 
In the second half of the 1980s, computer networking became a more commonly used tool in law enforcement, and details from Sarah's case were entered into a computer system called the Home Office Large Major Enquiry System, or HOLMES, named after the popular British detective novels. Susan's details had to be manually entered from thousands of index cards, and Caroline's had to be transferred over from a different system that was not networked and searchable. It took three years to get all of the specifics updated into the new system, but this would allow authorities from different areas to share information about cases. If investigators in a different area entered details about a case that had similarities to the three connected murders, they would be able to compare suspects. This would hopefully widen the net they had cast over the UK. On April 24, 1988, 15-year-old Teresa Thornhill was hanging out at a park in Nottingham with some friends. When she left the park, she began walking home with a friend named Andrew Beeson. After they went their separate ways, a man yelled out to Teresa asking if she could fix engines. He was standing by his van on the side of the road with the hood up. She said no and kept walking, but he quickly grabbed her and began carrying her to his van. Teresa screamed and fought against the man, knocking off his glasses. She grabbed his genitals and squeezed, which caused the man to yell at her to get in the van. As he tried to shove her in, she managed to get her foot on each side of the door to keep herself on the outside of the van, like when you try to put a cat in a carrier to take it to the vet. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. By then, Andrew hadn't gotten far away and he heard her screams, so he ran the direction they were coming from. When he got within sight of the attempted abduction, he yelled, quote, Get off of her, you fat fucking bastard! Robert dropped Teresa and jumped into his van, speeding away. Teresa and Andrew ran off to get help, and Robert took the opportunity to swing back around and pick up his glasses. Teresa and Andrew gave a description of a stocky, scruffy man who was driving a blue Ford Transit, but they hadn't been able to get the license plate number. The attack was caught on a CCTV camera, but the quality wasn't good enough to get the plate number either. Again, no suspects were identified and this attempted kidnapping wasn't even considered to be linked to the three murders. Maybe because there was no murder. Maybe because Teresa was older. Reports say that Teresa was small and looked younger than she was, which likely attracted Robert, but on paper, other police departments would only see the age of 15. It would remain a solitary case of a girl luckily escaping an isolated abduction until after Robert was arrested. On July 14, 1990, Robert's job had taken him back up north and while he was in Stowe, just southeast of Edinburgh, he spotted 12-year-old Mandy Wilson, who was out walking her dog. When he approached her and asked her a question, her dog began barking at him, drawing a lot of attention, and he abandoned his plan to grab her. He thanked her and drove away. Then he had some lunch at a cafe, because kidnapping works up an appetite. After lunch, he was driving down the road when he spotted a six-year-old who hasn't been named. He found a spot to park ahead of where she was walking and waited. When she passed by, he grabbed her and put her in the back of his van. He drove north to a nearby highway pull-off and sexually assaulted the girl. 
Then he tied her up, put a bag over her head, and then tied her into a sleeping bag. He would later tell an investigator that he wanted to make his last delivery and then take her somewhere so he could sexually assault her again. Little did Robert know, a local man had been out mowing his lawn when the abduction happened. His yard was below the road, so he remained out of Robert's sight, but he had seen the little girl, who happened to be his next-door neighbor, walking on the road, and as she passed the van, she disappeared. He was able to write down the license plate number and ran next door to tell her mother what had happened. When police arrived, one of them being the girl's father, the man gave them a detailed description of the van and the plate number. Robert's last delivery was south, and he had to drive back through Stowe in order to get there. When he did, the man saw him drive by and told the police it was the same van. Police pulled Robert over and arrested him. Tucked on the floor of the passenger seat was the six-year-old girl tied up in the sleeping bag. When interviewed, Robert admitted that he liked young girls for most of his life. He made it seem like this was the first time he had ever abducted a child and claimed that he, quote, only touched her a little. He said he wanted to take her somewhere that he could spend more time with her. He said that this must have been a, quote, rush of blood to the head, as if it were a singular act. Fortunately, a detective in Stowe recognized the similarities between this abduction and the three cases that were now dubbed the Midland Triangle Murders and notified the task force working those cases. When the van was searched, they found rope, tape, hoods, a Polaroid camera, a mattress, various girls' clothing, and a number of sex toys. Robert would claim that while he was working, he would pull over his van, put on the girl's clothes, and masturbate. None of the clothes were connected to any of his known victims. In his attic room at the Rayson's house, they found a large collection of child pornography, children's clothes, more sex toys, and a newspaper article about the attempted abduction of Teresa Thornhill that had a semen stain on it. Robert Black pleaded guilty to the abduction and sexual assault of the girl in Stowe. It seemed that he believed that pleading guilty would afford him a lighter sentence, but the judge sentenced him to life in prison. He appealed the ruling, but the appeal was dropped after a few months. Authorities began the long task of proving that Robert was guilty of the Midlands Triangle murders. Their investigation led them to his employer who provided delivery schedules, travel logs, and fuel receipts. They were able to match Robert's movements on the dates of the abductions and murders through those records. One important record was the delivery he made in Morley, just 150 yards from Sarah Harper's house, the same delivery he signed with a date and time. Robert Black was charged with 10 counts including 3 counts of murder, three counts of kidnapping, and three counts of preventing the lawful burial of a body for the cases of Susan Maxwell, Caroline Hogg, and Sarah Harper, as well as one count of attempted kidnap for the case of Teresa Thornhill. He pleaded not guilty to all counts. His defense counsel tried to get separate trials for each victim and keep the prosecution from mentioning the similarities between the cases as well as the similarities to the kidnap of the girl in Stowe. This would make it harder to get convictions because not every case individually had strong evidence, but the similarities made it obvious that they were carried out by the same person, a person that had been caught red-handed 
the judge denied the defense's motion. The prosecution presented the evidence found in the van, which were clear tools used for kidnapping. They also presented eyewitness testimony from the attempted abduction of Teresa and the kidnapping of Caroline. On May 19, 1994, Robert Black was found guilty on all counts and he was sentenced to life in prison. He was ordered to serve a minimum of 35 years for each murder, which were to run concurrently. That means that the sentences would be served together at the same time. Every year he was in prison marked a year off of all three sentences. I personally think we should get rid of concurrent sentencing. If you get sentenced to three different crimes, you should have to do that time individually. You shouldn't have a cheat code for prison that gets you a way to serve more than one sentence at a time. You get sentenced to 20 years, then you also get sentenced to 10 years. The victims deserve that you do that time. You owe the first victim 20 years and you need to complete that before you start paying back the second victim. Concurrent sentencing is just like sentencing a criminal to one term and giving them a free pass for the other crimes. That's just me, though. With one of the UK's worst child killers behind bars, authorities began working to connect any more cases they could to Robert. He had gone years without a victim, but did he really not kill any children? Police from various areas in the UK and other European countries came forward with cases that could have been carried out by Robert. The travel logs from his employers showed that he traveled into other countries and authorities in those countries began compiling cases that Robert might have been responsible for. Other cases in the UK that authorities believed were the work of Robert was the disappearance of 13-year-old April Fab on April 8, 1969. She went missing from a village northeast of London not long after Robert moved to the city. Next was the May 21, 1973 disappearance of 9-year-old Christine Markham from Scunthorpe, north of London, and 13-year-old Jeanette Tate, who was abducted on August 9, 1978, while she was delivering newspapers near the town of Exeter. None of their bodies have ever been found, but Jeanette's disappearance had been linked to Robert through his delivery records. One strong case from Germany would have happened during a break in the UK murders. On June 20, 1985, 10-year-old Silke Garbin disappeared while on her way to a dentist appointment. Her body was found in a stream the next day. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled, though ultimately died by drowning. Robert's travelogue showed him making a delivery to the area at the time of her abduction. There were also four cases of murdered girls between the ages of 7 and 10 years old in northern France in May and June of 1987, another time period where there was a break in UK murders. These cases all matched Robert's M.O. and were in areas on the European run of deliveries from his employer. One of the past cases that ended up being linked to Robert was the kidnap and murder of Jennifer Cardi in 1981. Investigators poured through hundreds of thousands of documents to find that Robert had made deliveries in Northern Ireland and fuel receipts placed him in the area of Jennifer's abduction and murder. They also found a pay receipt that showed a 50-pound bonus for doing the Midlands run with the additional trip to Northern Ireland that week. In December of 2009, Robert Black was charged with the murder of Jennifer Cardi and he pleaded not guilty. 
The jury, though, was convinced that the serial child killer was guilty and Robert was sentenced to another life sentence with a maximum term of 25 years. It would technically be possible, though unlikely, for Robert to be released when he was 89 years old, but he would never make it that far. He died of a heart attack while in prison on January 12, 2016. He was 68 years old. Not long after entering prison, he was attacked by other inmates. They threw hot water in his face and beat him severely. This is because most prison inmates don't like people who harm or kill children. It takes a special kind of evil to have other criminals think you're a monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can also check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our new merch at Teespring. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.